This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Welcome back to the Wall Street Coach. My name is Kim Ann Curtin. Lucas Peterson is with me today, and we are very honored and very fortunate to have the one and only Jim Rogers here. <laughs> Thank you, Jim, for being here. Kim, I'm delighted to be here. It's been a long time since I saw you. It's been a long time since I've seen anybody, you know, <laughs> so to Singapore, moved to Asia. But it's a delight to see both of you. Hello. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I think most of our audience will know Jim very well, but if you happen to be a young upstart who hasn't uh, yet been exposed to Jim, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about him, but I won't even do him justice. Uh, Jim is an author and an investor and a financial commentator. Uh, he grew up in Demopolis, and let me pronounce this right, Jim, you tell me if I'm saying this right, Demopolis, Alabama. Is that correct? That's exactly right. My phone number was five. <laughs> really? Your phone number was five? <laughs> Typo five. Simple phone number five. You don't forget that phone number, no, which is well, very... That's why they gave it to us. They, <laughs> they knew we could remember. My, my, had a, my mother had a fifth child, a fifth son, and we didn't have a name because they were expecting a girl, so I kept saying, let's call him five. <laughs> He probably didn't like that. Oh, but he was too young to know. He, he has a real name. Yeah, his name is good. Not five. What is his name? His name is not Five. His not name Five. Is <laughs> now, Five is an auspicious number for you because Five is how old you are when you started your entrepreneurship venture selling peanuts. Am I correct? Uh, well, actually, I, I picked up the, I was, I was an employee. I picked up the empty bottles the first year. The second year I started my own, I became an entrepreneur and started my own, my own. Well, that was smart because, you know, five, you got a lot to learn. So I imagine. Right. I learned <laughs> how it, it worked. I learned how it worked. And then I started, and when I was six, I started my own business. That is pretty <laughs> impressive. Pretty impressive. Jim started By on Wall way, Street. Jim, yeah, tell me. By the way, I, I am sure that if we did this, that now, I'd, we'd all be in jail, you know, but it was in the backwoods of Alabama. My phone number was five. Nobody cared. Nobody paid any attention. But I'm sure that if we did something like this now, had five-year-olds and four-year-olds working, boy, we'd all be in jail. Yes, oh, yeah. absolutely. It was a different. It was a different era, and in, in a lot of ways, though that entrepreneurial spirit, I think back in the day, it was expected. Like everybody just expected you, even as children, to kind of, you know, carry, help carry the load. Well, I keep trying to tell my children the same thing. My daughter was, was turned fourteen. I told her she had to get a job. I just assumed she'd go down and get a job at McDonald's making $8 an hour. Yeah. Kim, she's a lot smarter than I am. She got a job teaching Chinese making $30 an hour. Wow. And complaining because the grown-ups make $60 an hour. <laughs> she should be getting $60 an hour. I said, you're 14 years old. 
but she's Jim Rogers' daughter. She's a capitalist. Yeah, and she knows her worth. I hope she can take care of me someday, yes. That's right. That's right. I can't believe she's 14 because when I interviewed you for my book, I think she was, I guess she was like four. Well, she's 18 now, so she was born in 2003. Wow. Now 18. She just started at Columbia wow. yesterday. Wow, congrats. That has to be quite an amazing feeling to see her going into school. Oh, uh, well, yeah, I, certainly. I, nothing I can do about it. I, I guess I could tell her not to go to school. I tried to get her to join the Army. She had no interest. So now she's off at an Ivy League school. Yep. Yep. Well, they do. They have probably a couple of things to teach her, but I, I think your perspective. So, so why did you tell her to join the army? What was your, what was no, your I, was just, I was just saying, okay, you can do anything you want. Maybe you want yeah. to do yeah. something different. And who knows if you join the army, you might learn, you certainly will learn different things than yeah. you'll learn in Columbia. Uh, in the end, she, I said, or the Marines, whatever you want to do. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in the end, she decided to go to New York to Columbia. Wow. It's, it's, it's going to be a heck of an adventure, and I can't wait to see what she creates for herself, for sure. I remember you and I were talking at that time about why you were in Singapore. Jim is in Singapore today, so we're even more fortunate to have him because of the time differences. Um, but you were very uh, conscious. Now this is, you know, Gosh, my, my book's been out for five, six years, seven, eight, nine. So it's nine years ago that I interviewed you. And I remember even then you were saying, I want my children to learn how to speak uh, this language because this is the future. You, you knew it even then. And uh, as always, you seem to be way ahead of the curve. What do you attribute that to, Jim? Well, because if you grow up in Demopolis, Alabama, you you got to look around. You know, most people never leave who are there, and that's which is quite which is fine. Or like me, they want to go and see the world. There's something else out there. I once said to my girlfriend when I was a teenager, "Gosh, I'm 16. I've never been anywhere." And she said, "What? I'm 16. I've been to Birmingham. I've been to Montgomery. I've been to I've been." To I realized that was not quite what I had in mind. Well, do you, I remember when I interviewed you, you spoke a lot about your parents and the way they interacted in that small town and how they were outliers in their perspectives and their opinions. And I'm just curious, do you, do you attribute your outlook and your ability to see the world different to what you learned from them? No, I, I'm sure it's a mental defect <laughs> that, I, that I have. I have my own mental defects. Um, no, I, they well, probably my mother certainly. They never really traveled. They didn't do much uh, outside of you know the south, southeast. Um, so I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. I think back on it, my mother certainly wanted to know about more of the world. Seemed to know more about more of the world. I have no idea. She's not here anymore, so I cannot ask her. Yeah. I, I recall that you shared with me the story of her political uh, disposition. Her political party was not the common party of the town or the, you know, other friends of hers. And that that was, 
your you were witnessing her kind of having her own position or her own outlook, even just politically, than what the majority had. And that it was a story that really touched me. I thought, wow, I wonder if he got that from her. Well, I don't know if there may used to be the the solid South. I mean, the the, the South always voted Democrats for because of historic reasons. Uh, the Democrats always had a vice president candidate from the South to make sure they retained solid South. Um, I mean, it was nobody knew any Republicans. But in 1952, when Eisenhower ran, my mother and some other ladies in the town set up a little storefront office for Eisenhower. Now, this is in the middle of the solid South. And there they were, these crazy women with a, with a, with a storefront for Eisenhower and the Republicans. I mean, they weren't run out of town that I know of, but no, we didn't go out. But yeah. He was doing strange things long ago. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it's it's an impressive story to me because anybody who knows you knows that you have been always uh, an outlier in how you approach the markets. So talk a little bit about that. I started to say this about your biography in the beginning. Mr. Rogers started in 1964 on Wall Street and later was the co-founder of the Quantum Fund. He's written so many books, but I have to speak to Investment Piker because that book was the first book that I read on finance. And I will. I worked at Borders Books and Music. I had the business section. Your book, it was the cover. I can remember the map, the, the geography map behind and a picture of you on your motorcycle. And when I opened that book and started to see how you realize that here you have this socialist country and yet you were seeing democracy on the ground that you would not have seen had you not been on a motorcycle and that that made you aware and awake to things that perhaps the majority of investors weren't seeing. I, I just remember it was like, oh, finance, that's what this means. I don't, I don't think I had a comprehension of it before your book, but your book made it uh, uh, something I could wrap my arms around. And I think what hit me the most was how you were somebody who was willing to listen to your own voice. You wanted to see it for your own eyes, what was available, what was out there. And you didn't want to just listen to the masses. You were like, let me go see, see what I see. Talk more about that. Well, I have certainly found <clears throat> And if you want to know what's going on, you don't watch TV, you know, or don't read the newspapers, because if, if you read the newspapers, if you don't read the newspapers, you're uninformed. If you read the newspapers, you're misinformed. You know, you probably get it wrong. So you need to go and see it from the ground up. I can tell you many stories where that has happened to me. And I said, oh, my gosh, all that stuff that I was taught all my life is not correct. So I learned that. Uh, from the ground up. If you see the world close to the ground, you'll know a lot more about it. It's not as simple. It's not as easy as just turning on the newspaper, but that's what, if you want to see, and that's what I have done for many years now, many years uh, going back, I guess, since I started on Wall Street. And sometimes I've got it right. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> a little more than sometimes, sir. Tell, most of our audience are traders. Uh, a lot of them are day traders. Some of them are sophisticated. Some of them are brand new. 
what do you feel is the most important, let's say two to three pieces of advice that a trader in today's market, we're filming this in September 2021, what, what do you feel are the three most important things they need to be conscious of? Well, I guess the most important is to watch Wall Street coach. That's the most important thing <laughs> to figure out what's going on. Uh, second, stay with what you know. I mean, everybody wants a hot tip. Everybody wants to get rich this month. Well, I want to get rich this month, too. But I've learned that hot tips will send you straight to the poorhouse. So if you want to be successful, don't listen to other people. Just stay with what you know. Now, you said traders, so I presume they're more short-term oriented. But if I said you can only have 20 investments in your life, Kim, most people would get very rich because they wouldn't be jumping in and out of things. They would wait till they knew what they were doing, and then they would be successful. Now, they would say, well, that's boring. Okay, you want to be rich? You want to be successful? Be boring. Don't worry about being boring. Just do your own thing, whatever it is. And I have known guys who are phenomenal traders who, you know, if they owned a stock for a day, it was long term. But I've also known people who made great deal of in what they knew and stayed with it. Um, so that's my best advice to everybody. Don't listen to your friends. Don't listen to your parents. Don't listen to your teachers. Do what you know and love and you will be successful. Yeah. And for those who perhaps are just starting out and they actually may hear you and say, but I, I don't know what it is that I love or I don't yet know enough to even kind of find my sweet spot. How, how did you find your sweet spot? Uh, when I was a senior at college, I was going to go to law school, business school, medical school. I was as confused as everybody else uh, in college. Then I stumbled into a summer job on Wall Street, and I said, oh, my gosh, they will pay me to know what's going on in the world and follow the world. And I, I realized, oh, that's what I love. I didn't go to law school, medical school, business school. I, I went to Wall Street as soon as I could because I realized that was my passion. And I, it was pure accident. I took the job on Wall Street because I liked the guy. I didn't know anything about Wall Street. I knew it was in New York somewhere. I knew something bad happened in 1929. I thought stocks and bonds were the same thing. I didn't know anything <laughs> when I, I went there, but I fell in love and pursued it. So all I can say to you is yes, many people never find what they love, or if they do, they're afraid. They're afraid to do it because everybody laughs at them. All I can say to you is figure it out. If you go to a doctor's office and there are 500 magazines, which one do you read? If you turn on the computer, what do you, where do you go? What, what, is your, what interests you? No matter how absurd it may seem to somebody, do it. And in fact, the more people who laugh at you, the more likely you are to be doing the right thing. So pursue it. Beautiful, wow. beautiful. That's, Luke, is, that is you, uh, now I just love that and that all of that those those little drops of wisdom right there. <laughs> the the more absurd, the more likely you're probably doing the right thing. <laughs> absolutely, if everybody laughs at you, you call me up because I want to do it too. <laughs> I mean, if I love, it, if I love it, if I love it. So, who is the first person you worked for on Wall Street that you loved? That you took the job because of 
Well, it was a firm called Dominic and Dominic, which was a oh, very old, uh, start over a hundred years old at the time. There was an old white shoe firm, you know, all the guys were a Harvard, Yale, Princeton types. They were class, higher class than I was. But uh, the guy, there was a guy there who uh, was from the Bronx and went to Harvard. Well, I was in backwoods of Alabama and went to Yale. So we hit it off. <laughs> didn't know anything. I didn't know where the Bronx was. I didn't know where Wall Street was. But we liked each other. And so he said, come work for us for the summer. And I did. And here I am. Oh, amazing. And then, then what happened? How, how did you find yourself co-founding Quantum Fund? Well, what, what happened was uh, they started working at it. Uh, I'm trying to learn the business. Uh, at first, I'm, there were all these people. They were older, more educated, more experienced. And so I assumed they knew what they were doing. Didn't take me long to figure out they don't know any more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> trying to copy them, you know, I better do it on my own. Um, and I became a little bit successful and people knew me and I met a guy who was needed a young man and I needed a job. And so we hooked up with each other. And at one point they changed some rules in Washington and we couldn't continue to have a hedge fund in a brokerage firm. So we started on our own. Thank goodness for some foolish bureaucrats. They changed the rules, so we had to start our own independent. <laughs> do you do you think you knew then what was to come? Do you think there was uh, an inkling of we're onto something, or did it surprise you as it unfolded? It's a surprise. Was scared to death like everybody else. Anybody, anybody <laughs> goes into the market learns very quickly. If you think you know what you're doing, you're going to find out quickly that you don't. <laughs> so, I mean, the world was littered with people who were going broke and losing money. So no, of course I was scared. But I loved it so much, Kim, that I didn't care. Well, I mean, don't say I didn't care because I, I didn't want to lose everything. I did lose everything once. But no, I, I just loved it, and fortunately, it worked. So you said yeah. you did lose everything. Tell, tell me what that was. When, when did that happen? Yeah. A couple of years into my career, I realized, I, I came to the conclusion that the market was going to collapse. I, who, 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 who am I to even think something like that? Because I was so inexperienced. But I took all my money and I bought puts. Uh, you know, puts you buy when you think things are going to collapse. And lo and behold, five months later, I had money and everybody around me was collapsing. I mean, I said, this is easy. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be the next Bernard Baruch. What an easy way to make money. You know the rest of the story. I presume on the day the market hit bottom, I, reversed. I sold my puts, waited a month or two for the market to rally. It did. This time I sold short because you buy puts, you got to pay a premium especially when there's chaos around you. So I sold short with everything, and uh, two or three months later, I'd lost everything. <laughs> lost everything, which was not fun. Not fun, but it taught me a lot. It taught me that there were lots I didn't know about markets, lots I didn't know about other investors. I shorted six stocks, Kim. Every one of them went bankrupt within two years. <laughs> but I lost everything first. <laughs> Just drove these things up, you know. I thought, well, if I know it's going to go bankrupt, everybody knows that. 
turns out that's one of the things I learned. You have to take into account what other people are doing and other people are thinking when you're talking about public markets. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story because I really do believe and have seen and spoken to so many traders over the years that I don't know that the young, more inexperienced ones prepare themselves for that inevitable loss that is shocking and unexpected. I think they all need to hear these stories, especially from veterans like yourself, to prepare for it and also perhaps to put in place what it is that will help them come back from it. What helped you come back from it? Well, Kim, I didn't have much choice. I mean, I guess, you know, a lot of people commit suicide or go and become priests or, or philosophers or new lives, whatever. Uh, I wasn't interested in becoming a priest or a philosopher, and I certainly didn't want to kill myself. So all I could do was, you know, save my money and keep trying and starting over, which is what I did. And eventually it, I got it right, and eventually it worked, partly because I learned so much by getting wiped out and being right and being wiped out, which, which was an important lesson to learn. Um, so all I could do was just keep going to work every day and save some money and start over. Wow. Yeah. And what, what you just underlined was that you were correct, and yet you still got wiped out. Lost everything. Lost everything. I, I learned that by, one of the other lessons I learned was you – you better have some reserves. You better not have, if you're all, if you're all in, you better know what you're doing. Cause if you don't, you know, the margin clerk's going to call you up and you can say, well, wait a minute, Mr. Margin clerk, don't you know? The margin clerk's going to say, I'm sorry, Mr. Rogers. I don't know any of that. I don't understand what you're saying. All I know is this is a margin call and you got to put up the money or I have to sell you out. Margin clerk doesn't care. Whether you went to Harvard Business School, you never finished high school. Margin Club just knows you got to come up with the money if you're wrong. Absolutely. But I, but I love that you point out that you technically were correct, that those companies all went bankrupt, but they just didn't go bankrupt soon enough. <laughs> I lost everything first. And then they went. <laughs> they should have turned around. They should have gone bankrupt first. And then I could have made money. But it didn't work. <laughs> Nerve. Who did they think they were? They had, <laughs> they, the nerve. they had the nerve to skyrocket first. <laughs> Lucas, did you yeah. go to have a question before? Um, yeah, I, I've, I've, you know, uh, done some research on you and there have been multiple times throughout your career where you've kind of uh, anticipated bear markets. Um, and I'm wondering if that is, was that first one, was that a, a, a real experience? Was that a the big learning experience for you? You think what what has um, what has informed that? I told you, Louis, I, I got it right, and literally, it was the worst bear market in thirty or forty years came along, and I was thriving, thriving. How do I know how I did that? I'm some hick from the backwoods of Alabama, uh, but, but I did get it right. Now it was a fabulous lesson, but it also turned out to be a disaster. I told you. I led me on to thinking I knew what I was doing, and then I got wiped out. Now, I mean, I, I, I've learned over the years since then, but don't think I don't make many mistakes. I've made many mistakes in my life, starting with that one. 
risk, talk a little bit about risk and how what your relationship to it is, how you manage it. Well, I have learned that I don't like taking risk. I, I try not to do anything unless I really, really, really think I know what I'm doing. And even then, just the example I told you about, even then I make mistakes and can lose money. Um, I know people who have stop losses. You know, I know a guy, if it goes down 15%, he's out. Uh, I wish I'd done that many times. Uh, I don't have any rules like that. When it goes against me, I obviously have to do a lot more research and checking to see if I'm right or wrong. Um, I mean, I don't have a solution to, to risk, except I know it's out there. I've learned, just told you, I've made many mistakes in my life. So I have learned to be careful or try to be careful. Yeah. Where did the idea to ride the motorcycle come from? Well, I tell you, I grew up in the backwoods of Alabama, and I wanted to see the world since I was young. Uh, and motorcycles were great. I loved motorcycles. I, I had had a couple. Um, and so I, I knew that the best way to see the world and have fun was be on a motorcycle. You're very close to the ground. You see everything. <laughs> so I had this dream for a long time, and finally I, I did it. Uh, I retired when I was 37, 37 with the explicit purpose to go around the world on the motorcycle. Now, that was difficult in those days, Kim, because there was red China, Soviet Union, Iron Curtain, you know, this was insane. But I persisted and finally got permission and did it. Wow. And it was and so, much fun, so much fun that I did it again, only I did it in a car the next time. I'd already, <laughs> already done it on what, what was one or two of the most surprising things in the middle of that journey that you just were gobsmacked by? That I'm still alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Most people who try, not many try, but most who do fail, and, and many of them fail, they get killed. I mean, yeah. this, is not, this is not driving up to Albany for the weekend. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty complicated out there. How how often did you? Of it. Don't think I didn't love every minute of it. Don't, oh, don't, don't, don't. But I am I am surprised and delighted that I'm alive. Yeah. Do you did you have to lean into your southern charm on a couple of occasions, even with the language barrier? Well, well I, I don't know how I survived. I did. I was once held hostage for nine days or so in the Congo. That's right. uh, I mean, experiences where I shouldn't be here talking to you right now, but I am. Whatever I did, it worked, and here I am. Yeah, I I forgot about that in the Congo, but you do talk about that. That that you know. I do want to say, you know, you were asking about risk and how, etc. Whenever I got to a, a city, the first thing I would do is go to the police and park my motorcycles in the police that, or try to. Yeah. Uh, but I figured that would be a way that the bikes would be safe and that the police would know I was in town. Not that that was something I told you. When I was held hostage in the Congo, it was by the police. <laughs> the police held me hostage for nothing. They wanted money. But I did try to be cautious and limit the risk. I mean, I know this is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. But I mean, I, it didn't matter. I want I would say to people, okay, they said they would say, you're going to get killed. I'd say, well, at least I'm going to die happy. It's not as though I'd be walking down the street in New York and get hit by a bus and get killed. You know, right. at least I'm going to die happy doing what I want to do. Fortunately, yeah. I didn't die. Yeah, yeah. So that, that concept of 
being happy and and doing what you love uh there are times when some of the traders that i've coached uh struggle with the delineation between their love of trading and their lives and and finding a way to uh have them in balance there's times when they feel they're trading sitting at their desk way too long way too much and they know okay i have to perhaps be mindful of leaving my trading desk. How have you, I know you love finance, so how do you find that, that delineation between being working and living? <clears throat> well, I'm not a good person to talk about balance. You know, when I was in college, that's all I did. When I was on Wall Street, that's all I did. I focus, focus, focus. When I went around the world, that's all I did. Uh, so, so people frequently say, "Well, what about balance?" I said, "I'm not, I'm not the person for balance. I, I do everything to excess. If it's worth doing, and I'm passionate about it, I do it to excess." And that's not for many people, of course. Uh, I, I did not have children for many years because I did not want children. I thought they were a waste of time, money, energy, etc. Because I had these other focuses. Uh, now, now I spend much less time. Well, I spend as much time as I can on my children because it's my new passion. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't spend nearly as much time worrying about investments as I used to. Uh, I. I am not the person to ask about balance and how to do things. I do everything. I do it to excess if I want to do it. But Jim, I have to say, what I hear though, there is a balance there because you find your passion, whatever season of life you're in, and that is you. And then you find another one whenever that time comes. So perhaps your balance just looks different than everybody else's, but. It, it sounds pretty balanced to me. Well, I don't know. Uh, my, my, I, I told you about mistakes before. Let me tell you about my first wife. She didn't think it was a terribly good way to, you know, to, to live. She was in in New York in the '60s when New York, Columbia was going berserk. You know, people were yes. in the street, and she loved that. Well, here she's married to some guy who's on Wall Street. Well, that's not very cool when you're sitting up at Columbia trying to burn down the university. So <laughs> my husband, my husband is not here because he's at work on Wall Street. So that didn't work. I assure you that didn't work. Um, I made many. Yes, I have had many, many wonderful experiences and many, many successes. But it's been because I mainly pursued what I loved. Yeah. Uh, a gift to my children, the book that you wrote, A Father's Lessons for Life and Investing. Talk a little bit about that book. It's one of my favorites uh, because of how much heart is in that book, how much love uh, for your children. Tell us how that book came about. Well, it came out because I was being interviewed by a Japanese reporter. And she said, well, what, what do you want to tell your children? So we did a chapter. We did a story. She did a story for a Japanese magazine. And it was very popular. So she said, let's do another one. You got any other? So the next thing you do, we had 10 or 12 lessons for my children. And the Japanese, well, let's make this a book. Well, what do I know? So I said, oh, God, we made it into a book. It was basically things I wanted my children to know. I wanted, there's no sense telling a four-year-old some of those things. But there were things that I wanted to make sure 
they learned and they knew when they were adults. It's really a book for adults because uh, yeah. second a four-year-old wouldn't really get it, or a thirteen-year-old, yeah. maybe a thirty-three-year-old would. So yeah. it, that's how it started. Just lessons to, in a <laughs> from a reporter, things I wanted my kids to know when they were adults, and it's turned out to be quite successful. Yeah, it's a beautiful book, a really special one. It's also, I mean, I. When I decided to write my book, I knew that I wanted to interview you because of Investment Biker, but that book just pushed me right over the edge because I thought this book is about that, that level of being true to yourself, that level of integrity uh, and character and how important that is. Do you think you grew up that way? Is it something you learned along the way? Well, Kim, I, I wish I could sit and tell you that this is how you should live your life so you don't make all the mistakes I made. <laughs> but I just make the mistake, get hit ahead, and realize, oh, that's not going to work. You better start thinking about it and do something different. Uh, same with children. You know, I never wanted children. Um, never. Children, I kept up. I so sorry for my friends who had children. They were ruining their lives. Money, time, energy, everything. Uh, then I had one. And I realized I was totally wrong. This was fabulous, wonderful. If there's anybody watching this who hasn't had children, I urge you get home and get on with it. <laughs> take, take a day off if you have to. Well, no, don't take a day off. You're gonna you go, go go home for lunch. Have a lunch hour. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience. If you're old enough and if you're ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, early, I was asking about your sense of character. Where do you think you, you, you have, even you spoke, I remember in my interview with you about the Vietnam War and, and you're in the Vietnam War and yet you were still asking questions about it, talking to your supervisors about it, pushing back. I was in the streets. I was in the streets demonstrating. I was, during the 60s, it was very, I was an officer in the United States Army. And that was not a smart thing to do to be demonstrating. But they, they, they took a dim view of Army officers being against the war, much less demonstrating. Well, I did. And somehow or another, I survived. Uh, I didn't go to jail. Maybe I should They thought I should have. I didn't. Maybe if they found out, if they knew more, they should, I'm sure they would have. Uh, but it was clear to me this was an absurd situation. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I found many absurd situations in the U.S. You remember, you've heard of Afghanistan? Well, what were we doing? What, what possessed us to do that for 20 years? What possessed us to go into Iraq for weapons of mass destruction, which didn't exist? I mean, who are these guys that sit down there and kill all these little boys and girls and spend all our money and, and ruin our reputations around the world? Oh, I have learned. From an early age, most of this stuff that comes out of government—it's not just the U.S. government. All governments is a waste of time and wrong. So you better question it. You better question it. You better question. Yeah, and that and that questioning uh, is to me just an indicator of your character. It, you have always been somebody who seems to be able to think for yourself. You, you don't follow the sheep. You don't follow the masses. You you push back. And I, I attribute that 
not just to character, but also just to curiosity. That that's what I felt from you from the beginning in even investment biker. You're always curious, Jim. How do you maintain that curiosity? I don't know, but the, the one thing, one of the main things I'm trying to teach my children is to question everything, be curious, look under the rocks, and if everybody says the sky is blue, don't say, oh, well, the sky is blue. No, go and look out the window and see if the sky is blue. Don't believe what everybody tells you. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know whence that came. Um, certainly as a teenager i i did quite i mean i wasn't in a place to question too much but i did question them some things and it continued i don't know here i am Kim. we're talking about <laughs> being a nut well here i am it worked it worked crazy crazy like fox that's what i think crazy like fox what do you hope people today in september 2021 what do you think they need to be as investors and or traders? What do they need to be aware of? What's your take on the future? Well, they need to stay with what they know. I want to go back to that because that is very important, especially if you're a young person. Uh, you need to figure that out, find out one way or another to figure it out, uh, and then pursue it. Kim, if you say you want to be a gardener, your parents are going to say, what, Kim, we didn't educate you and raise you to be a gardener. And your teachers are going to say, Kim, you've got a much better future than that. And, you know, your friends are going to say, you hear about Kim, she's a gardener. But Kim, you're never going to go to work. You're going to wake up every day and have fun. Uh, you won't have a job. You just have a wonderful, wonderful life. Those are the people who are most successful in life. They put what they love. Uh, and, and if they're not successful, Kim, they don't care. They're happy. You know, they're very, very happy. What do they care if they're as rich as Kim or not? They're very happy and successful. I think it, I think it would be pro, more appropriate to say as rich as Jim Rogers, but, <laughs> but I split hairs, but I split hairs. Many mistakes. Don't worry. I make plenty. Things. But that's what that's what I would say to people. Uh, that's the way. But many people never do it. Uh, one reason I went around the world was I didn't want to wake up one day and be 80 years old and get still sitting in front of a computer on Wall Street. Uh, I'm sure I would be much much richer than the other people I know. But but to, in my pathetic brain, I've had an intriguing and fascinating life full of adventure and full of new experiences. Now, there are people. Well, it's wealth. People, it's I know people say, who the hell cares? You know, I'm president of my country club or whatever it happens to. A wealth, you have true wealth, Jim, not, not just monetarily, but experiences and listening to your heart. I've, I, in my view, yes, experiences uh, are more valuable than a lot of silver coins. I have a lot of silver coins, but still, <laughs> I prefer, I prefer the experiences to silver coins. I got some, don't worry. Wow. I see that. that is Every pocket. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's nice to have both. It's, it's not bad to have both, but be sure not to maybe just have, uh, the silver coins alone. 
is what I'm hearing you say. Everybody has to do it their own way. My way was to see the world and have adventure. Yeah. Uh, If you're being a prognosticator for this very interesting market we're in, what are your prognostications for what's going to happen? Are we going to just keep having a bull market? We have never had a period in world history where everybody was printing staggering amounts of money and and interest rates. Interest rates are the lowest they've ever been in world in recorded history, and this is unique. But and needless to say, Kim, markets around the world love it because there's all this money flooding into the world. It's got to go somewhere. If you want to build a factory, it takes a long time. But if you want to put all this money into you, you go online in five seconds and buy lots of cotton if that's what you want or whatever you want. And that's what's happening. Um, it's going to come to an end, and when it comes to an end, it's going to be the worst bear market in my lifetime. I didn't say it's coming to an end yet. I'm just saying, you know, in 2008, we had a big problem because of too much debt. Yeah. Well, Kim, since 2008, debt everywhere is skyrocketed, staggering amounts. Even China has a lot of debt. Nobody would lend money to the Chinese 20 years ago, but now even China has a lot of debt. So the next bear market's going to be the worst in my lifetime. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just saying, look at the facts. See what happened in 2008 because of too much debt. Since then, the debt is much, much, much worse. And when this ends, it's going to be bad. Now, the Secretary of the Treasury in the United States says, no, no, don't worry. We're not going to have any more bear markets. We've we've sorted it out. (laughs) Well, she has a couple of Ivy League degrees. So if you believe her, don't listen to me. Uh, but I read enough history to know that we've always had bear markets everywhere in the world throughout history, and we're going to have them again. But she has two fancy Ivy League degrees, so maybe she's right. (laughs) What would you say to those who hear this and want to protect themselves? Where would you point them? How do they protect themselves? If you're investing only in what you know, you'll know what to do if things start going wrong. If you invest because you heard somebody on the internet, you have no idea what to do when things start going wrong. So if you're staying with your own stuff, you'll be in a much better position. But you know, I own silver. I own gold. Uh, I see them printing lots of money. I own commodities. As I look around the world, Kim, bonds are definitely above. I wouldn't. Very rarely would I suggest anybody buy bonds in 2021 because we've never had a bubble like this in bond. Property in many countries, you go to Korea, you go to New Zealand, you go many places in the world, property is a big bubble and getting worse. Stocks, I mean, some stocks, I mean, Amazon goes up every day. You know, some of these things are bubbles, not, not all stocks, and many stocks are not participating fully yet. So that's why I'm not bailing out and selling short the stock market. The only asset class I know that is still cheap. I mean, silver's down 60% from its all-time high. Sugar is down 60, 70% from its all-time high. Oil is down 50% from its all-time high. These are not bubbles when we talk about things being down 50, 60, 70%. So and if they continue to print money whenever they've done that in history, prices of some things go up. Well, if you own the things that go up, like sugar or silver, maybe you're going to make a lot of money, or at least you're going to survive. 
Yeah. Yeah. Any other jewels of wisdom that you want to share? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I can tell you lots of things. I, my children speak Mandarin. We moved, I, I could see that I thought that Mandarin was going to be very important in their lifetime. I certainly think that all people should make sure their children and themselves, if they can, speak at least two languages. And in our case, it was important to have two really excellent, not, but it's better to speak two excellently, in my view, than four badly or not so good. So, but I do think that in the 21st century, you're going to have a huge advantage. You always have, but especially now, if you speak more than one language. Chinese, in my view, Spanish. I mean, you can pick your, whatever you want to pick. There are plenty of languages out there. So I would certainly urge people. I'm, that's what I'm doing with my children. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know what my children are going to wind up doing. Yeah. Uh, if they ask me about stocks, then I, I'm happy to talk to them. But I have learned that if you try to force something on people, yeah. they're usually not very successful at it. They're not interested. Uh, when my kids were babies, I, I bought them piggy banks. And whenever they got money, we went and put it in the piggy bank. I wanted them to learn. Hmm. And if you say money is to be saved and invested, you know, many people get money and they immediately go spend it. Well, I, I wanted them to have their immediate not thought, oh, I have money, I must put it in the piggy bank. And when the piggy bank gets full, we go down to the big bank and put it in the big bank. They have not asked me much about the markets yet, but at least they know about interest and they know about saving and investing. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. So many, many people's lives have been ruined because they didn't quite understand money or they couldn't control it. Yeah. yeah. Did, did you feel you learned about money on your own through the journey you had, or did you find you were learning even in your household growing up? I didn't have any money, Kim. <laughs> I, could tell, I could tell the difference in not having money and having money. It didn't take me long. To figure out that having money was better than not having money. But your relationship to it, to you know, come from poverty and to know that there is something like investing that exists or putting money in a bank, I think a lot of people that do struggle with poverty, they don't, they don't, don't learn that there is something other than just spending it on just obviously bare necessities but the next level of investing where do you think you got that was it because you started to work on wall street early or were yeah, there I, other? You, I, I went to wall street and i could say oh my gosh this is a place you know if there's a revolution in chile that has huge impacts on your own investments well i was very fascinated about revolutions in chile and what was happening in the world and then I realized, oh, well, I can do something with this. I just have to sit here and read the newspaper and say, oh, what, what, look what's going on in Santiago. I can see what's going on and do something about it. Yeah. And that's why I didn't go to law school and medical school and all that other stuff. Yeah. Why I went to Wall Street. Yeah. It's amazing. Any last questions from you, Lucas? Uh, I'm just, uh, I'm just, I love that we're just underlining a. Uh, Figure out what's important to you uh, and, yeah. and do it. That's and stick to what you know. I think those are great, great little pieces of information for life. 
Well, they're actually big, big pieces of information, and unfortunately, <laughs> people don't pursue them and don't yeah. do it. Um, you know, I, I will tell you that right now, I suspect that agriculture is going to be a better place to be than Wall Street in the next couple of decades. But if you don't like being out in the sun and getting dirty, Lucas, don't become a farmer. <laughs> you'll, you'll fail. I would fail as a farmer, I'm sure. But doesn't mean I don't think it's a great place to be and to invest going forward. I'm buying agriculture as we speak, but I'm not buying a farm. Yeah, yeah. Jim, I could talk to you for hours. Uh, I hope you'll let us have you back. Uh, you are a man of so many talents, but you have, you got me into finance. I, I don't, I wouldn't be here without you and your incredible book, Investment Biker. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your perspective on life and for all that you've done for the, for the planet. It's really, you're a really special person. <coughs> well, Jim, thank you for Wall Street Coach. Okay. Thank you for all you're doing. I, I hope you love it as much as you seem to. And if you keep it up, keep it up. And I'm sure you will help some people. Uh, as you said, you have a lot of traders. Help them, help them, help them. But Thank you. Do not, do not give them hot chips. <laughs> I don't give them hot tips. I promise. I you don't, don't give them hot tips, and I will never give them hot tips. Everybody wants hot. I tell people all the time, hot chips are going to. And they say, "Okay, you're you're right. You're right. Just give us one. Just, Just give one. us one." <laughs> uh, it's it's hilarious, but I think I think there's so much wisdom in that alone because that is that's everybody wants a shortcut. Who doesn't want a shortcut? Yeah, I want to be rich this week too. It's still Thursday. I still have time. <laughs> You, know. you just need one hot tip, Jim. Give me one hot tip. I still have a couple of days for the market to go. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Jim Rogers. Yeah, thank you, you are so much. An amazing man. Right. Thank you. So have good. fun. Let's thank do it again you. sometime, okay? Okay. You got it. We'll have you back. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Aloha. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been the Wall Street Coach Podcast with K-Man Curtin. You can find out more about her and her team online at thewallstreetcoach.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.